Welcome to the IAB Policy Podcast, where we provide expert commentary and analysis on the legal and regulatory developments impacting the digital advertising industry. My name is Alex Propes, and I'm the Vice President of Public Policy for the IAB, based in Washington, D.C. In today's conversation, I get to sit down with Stacey Gray, who is Senior Counsel at the Future of Privacy Forum, where she focuses on issues such as data collection and online and mobile platforms, advertising technology, and the Internet of Things. During our discussion, Stacy and I will cover all things location data, from how it is collected and who has access to it, to its accuracy and its privacy implications. And of course, we'll talk about the active legislative debate that is currently taking place around COVID-19 and data privacy, and how Republicans and Democrats have tried to address location data privacy in the context of this public health crisis. I hope you enjoy. Stacy, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. So at the Future of Privacy Forum, or FPF, you've been doing a lot of writing recently and research on the topic of location data privacy. Uh, while that work has been ongoing for some time, I, I, I've seen a lot of great work from FPF over the years on this. The current coronavirus has certainly accelerated interest in the subject generally, as industry and health officials begin to explore how location data can be used in a, a helpful way to fight against the pandemic. I know this year you testified on the issue alongside IAB before a Senate Commerce Committee in a paper hearing entitled Enlisting Big Data in the Fight Against Coronavirus. That was an interesting experience. I'm curious for your, your thoughts uh, during this call on, on that in particular. Uh, but looking forward to delving into this issue in general and the work that you've done on it. And we'll make sure to include links to some of your writing on the subject in our show notes as well. But to kick off the conversation, could you just describe for us, you know, what what is location data? How do you think about this sensitive area? Sure, and and thanks for that introduction. I really appreciate it. I've I've worn many hats at FPF, um, but location data I think is one of the oldest running sort of portfolio and deep issue area expertise that that we have, and FPF has done a lot of work on it uh, prior to the pandemic as well. And so it's pretty cool to see it getting so much attention. Um, Specifically, we've been working on location data over the last year with an eye towards helping policymakers and experts in government understand the issue better because there's so much interest in legislation to protect consumer privacy. Um, And then we're also seeing that even location data collected in the consumer or commercial space for things like marketing and advertising is being repurposed and reused for for some public health related needs. Yeah, so it's a fascinating topic. It's exactly the right time to be talking about it. What is location data? It it feels like it shouldn't be a hard question, Alex, but (laughs) after looking at this for so long and we just finished this awesome infographic on the topic, it's a much harder question than I think people realize. Um, But specifically, what we're usually referring to with location data is persistent data about the location's in space and time of individual people. Um, And so that's almost all um, of the time is uh, mobile phone location data. We're talking about usually latitude, longitude with a timestamp. Maybe there's elevation data included in that um, when it's collected over time. And those kinds of location data sets about how individuals move, where they're going, where they've been, are incredibly valuable for a number of different purposes. Um, Marketing and commercial uses are a big one. You can imagine very compelling public health uses. Um, 
but it's usually distinguished along those lines because uh, you also find that when you kind of drill down into it, that a lot of routine information that's kind of sent and shared in the web browsing world or uh, between mobile devices can be used to infer a person's location, um, but isn't necessarily designed for that purpose. And that's kind of why I say it's a more difficult question than, than, than people realize. So for example, uh, your IP address, it's, a, it's an identifier, maybe it's rotating, maybe it isn't, that's sent and shared openly anytime that you access anything on the internet. Um, IP addresses are roughly correlated with approximate location. You can kind of tell what city or approximate area a person is in. Sometimes you can correlate them to specific uh, buildings like academic institutions. And so IP addresses can sometimes be used for uh, location, but maybe not precise location. Um, and other things work that way too. So mobile devices often emit um, identifiers associated with, you know, Wi-Fi or Bluetooth connectivity um, so that you can connect to a Wi-Fi network uh, easily without having to do it. It'll happen automatically. You connect to your home Wi-Fi network or your work Wi-Fi network. Um, those are persistent identifiers that are just associated with the device. We usually wouldn't think of that as location data, but if you are running, um, a Wi-Fi network, for example, in a public place, you might collect those identifiers over time and be able to track where devices are moving or if a person is a repeat customer. Um, so the tricky part, I think, is that it really comes down to how the data is used. So long way of answering your question, but hopefully th those are some of the core things for me. No, that's helpful. I think for our audience, uh, if they're working in industry and, and collecting uh, data, they should be thinking about whether or not there's there's perhaps location data buried uh, and maybe not so obviously uh, being collected that they should still be cognizant of. And so it's safe to say, you know, and, and just to make this really tangible, something like a zip code, um, likely not precise location data and that it doesn't have that persistence and doesn't uh, help you identify an individual, um, but rather probably a population uh, as compared to, like you had said, GPS or cell tower data. Is that fair to say? Yeah, totally, totally fair to say. I think there were there was a company or two in the last few years that um, got into some trouble on the privacy front for collecting the names of local Wi-Fi networks, for example, mm -hmm. um, when users had disabled location permission and uh, anyone who works in, in that field will know, of course, if you know the names of a person's nearby Wi-Fi networks, um, there are enough public and private databases of that kind of information that it's very easy to kind of reverse engineer or infer where that person is located, even sometimes very, very precisely. Um, and so that was considered to be a sort of a, a location data accidental leak, um, even though the company didn't think that they were collecting location data. Um, so that's a good, a good example of the sort of ways in which it can bubble up. And in the infographic, you did a really nice job of laying out who has access to this type of data. Could you give us an overview of, you know, where it currently sits? If I'm a consumer wondering, you know, who, who might know my whereabouts uh, based on say it, uh, a cell phone, uh, in the, to use the example that you provided earlier, uh, where is that information going and who has it? Great question. Um, 
you know, we created this infographic specifically for, we were thinking of state legislators, Hill staff, people working in government. And, and one of the big reasons why we did that is because we kept seeing that when people thought about location data, they typically thought about your cell phone carrier. So they're thinking, okay, T-Mobile, AT&T, whoever it is, my cell phone carrier has cell towers and they're routing the call or they're routing the, the, the connection to provide the service. And so they know where my phone is located. Um, and there have been a couple of instances over the past few years of uh, uh, telcos having this data or using it in unexpected ways. And so that's what people thought of. And one of the biggest things that we wanted to convey with this infographic is that that's a, one piece of it, but it's actually a, a relatively minor piece. And that in fact, there's a very large world of commercial data collection that involves location data collected from mobile apps. So if you have a weather app, if you have it really any app that is requesting permission to use location, um, even if it's for a service, you know, that's fairly obvious, like, oh, you want to get the local weather. Um, by and large, particularly for free apps, the industry standard is that those apps are sharing location data with advertising partners, uh, marketing partners, um, intelligence firms. And by that, I just mean the companies that are just in the business of analyzing location data, even if it isn't for advertising. Um, the data ends up being used in very wide uh, range of ways uh, for things like being sold to a commercial data broker to create audience segments uh, to serve advertisements. Um, in some notable cases, we saw over the last couple of years that the data was being sold to government entities for things like immigration enforcement, um, which is obviously unexpected, right? Um, and in general, that kind of data is tied usually to an advertising ID or some kind of other persistent identifier, not to your, your name or any kind of account. Um, but it still raises all kinds of privacy risks for, for reasons that we can get into. Um, so the number of commercial and government entities that end up having fairly easy access to these commercial data sets of location data is very, very large. Sometimes it's purchased outright. Uh, sometimes the data might just be licensed. Um, and I want to add that there are, in the midst of all of that, there are a lot of good use cases too. So we see, for instance, state departments of transportation are very interested in these kinds of data sets because they would like to know, for example, um, what is the best way uh, to build a new highway that's going to alleviate traffic congestion coming in and out of the city at a certain point. Um, where are the best places to build new bike lanes, right? There are a lot of sort of urban development and traffic and transportation analysis uh, use cases related to location data from phones as a proxy for people, but also from connected vehicles increasingly um, that can serve a lot of really useful, good purposes. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and then... 
an advertising context, of course, location data, as you highlighted, is used, and it, it does have tremendous benefits for, say, an advertiser that's you know based in a certain neighborhood, a small retailer, perhaps, um, and of course, any advertisements that are going to consumers outside of a certain geography are going to be you know wasted dollars in their their marketing, and so you know having some uh, sense of location or being able to. Uh, specify where ads are delivered within a certain location, you know, clearly has a, an economic benefit in that case. Um, but as you said, that needs to be weighed against these risks and done in a responsible way. Um, and so uh, very happy to to transition into some of those sensitivities, uh, which you alluded to. Um, how is location data you know, sensitive? What are the risks if this is misused? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. Um, I, I think some geospatial experts would would argue with me on this point and they would say really it's not there's no such thing as a sensitive location uh, what it really is is about the connection between the location and what you can infer about the individuals right so mm -hmm. in the aggregate for instance you might alleviate a lot of these risks but when it comes to particular locations like hospitals or elementary schools or um I don't know, marijuana dispensaries or abortion mm -hmm. clinics is a good one. Um, it's really not the location in itself that's sensitive. It's the fact that you can infer something about the kinds of people that are there uh, and tie them to future activities or past activities. Um, so location data, I think, is sensitive for a, a lot of the same reasons why it's useful for advertisers, ironically. Um, and so I'm in sure. assuming we have some, some media and publisher types and advertising uh, industry professionals listening. Um, I think it's interesting and useful to think about it that way because geotargeting ads is one use case for location data. You can very precisely you know, send an ad or just send local content to a specific geofenced area. Um, but a lot of the advertising marketing use cases are, are not really about that. They're actually about attribution and measuring the effectiveness of advertisements. So without the user ever seeing anything or seeing anything different than anyone else, what you might want to know is, based on this location data set, did the devices that passed by my billboard when they were driving on their way to work actually end up coming into my store? Uh, or did the people who saw a digital display in the mall end up uh, walking in? And of those, how many of them were repeat customers? Or how many of them had previously been to my competitor's store? Um, so that kind of measurement and attribution relies on sometimes... Uh, things that people don't necessarily remember accurately or want to report. So for instance, if you were to survey everybody and say, how many times do you go to the gym? You might get one answer. But if you're trying to create an audience segment for purposes of delivering an advertisement and you want to send something to people who go to the gym, you might get a different set of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, so being able to, to develop audience segments and measure uh, the effectiveness of advertisements based on location data sets um, is very, very useful because it's an accurate measurement of where people are going and where they've been. Those same characteristics make it sensitive, right? Um, 
most people don't expect that by by virtue of using a weather app or whatever you know sort of apps on their phones are collecting location data fitness apps are a big one <clears throat> that they're contributing i guess to these kinds of data sets or are going to be targeted with content later uh, or have their data collected and shared in this way um, so you could see, for instance, that a person had been to an abortion clinic. You could see that a person was visiting a particular church or a synagogue or a mosque. Um, and through their behaviors and patterns, um, you can infer sometimes very, very sensitive information about religious beliefs, uh, philosophical beliefs, lifestyle, trends, sexual orientation, um, I think I said political belief, right? But but I think, you know, whether a person is actively protesting right now mm -hmm. is a major thing that we've seen. Um, you know, and, and those are all sensitive things to be inferring. Um, and, and then there's also this kind of added layer that sensitivity is a little bit in the eye of the beholder, right? So uh, maybe the fact that I go to a particular church isn't sensitive to me, but the, the fact that, um, uh, I don't know, I'm cheating on my diet is uh, by going to this particular store uh, or restaurant. Maybe that's a different thing, right? I'm a vegetarian. I'm going to a steakhouse. I don't know. I'm just going, going over these examples, right? Yeah, it's very um, personal, right? Your, your yeah. own privacy preferences. Some things are sort of personally, subjectively sensitive. But, but aside from that, there are sort of these, there are sensitive categories that we have in privacy worlds kind of come to a consensus deserve additional protection under most privacy laws, right? Inferring things like political affiliation or religious belief um, or sexual orientation would be, would be considered sensitive and would require consent most likely. Um, and the hard part, I think, for, for most industry folks is when you collect data that you could use to infer those things, but that's not why you collected it. And maybe you have no interest in those things. Um, and in those cases, you know, there are mitigation measures that you can take. You can, uh, you can blacklist or whitelist data. You can redact data. You can aggregate it, right? There, there are things that can be done. But, um, but, but that's, that's some of the risk. You, know, you mentioned aggregating data. And you know, that, I think, is a good transition to COVID and some of the applications that we've seen around um, helping fight this pandemic. Uh, on the one hand, we've seen companies trying to apply aggregate data and get general takeaways uh, around how well people are or populations are following stay-at-home orders uh, or uh, other types of aggregated results. And then another, uh, on the other extreme, there is the concept of contact tracing and different methods for going about that. Could you maybe give, give us a bit of the lay of the land of you know, what you're seeing uh, around how location data could be applied to, to this current pandemic? Sure. Well, um, I think of it in a couple of buckets, right? So there is a, a world in which existing commercial data sets can be repurposed for public health needs. And I think aggregate data has been a powerful way to accomplish some of that. So for example, if you have an existing commercial data set being used for advertising, marketing, or, or maybe you're a telco and you have it from, from cell phones, 
um, you can look at the aggregate trends over time and provide information that is very useful to public health officials. Um, and the first advice there, I would say, is listen to the public health officials and ask them what they need rather than you know putting the data first. Um, but you can see whether people are complying with stay-at-home orders. Uh, you can see for those who are out and about what kinds of essential services um, are getting the most traffic. Are, are people going to the pharmacy more than they are the grocery store? Things, things like that. And down to um, even a county level to be able to make immediate decisions about where to deploy resources, for example, or where you need testing or where you need to contact locations and say you might want to do an extra, you know, round of sanitizing this space, right? Um, you can tell whether people are using public parks um, and how much. Um, that's all very useful. And it can be done without analyzing the individual level, person level data. Um, the only concerns there that we raised in some of our testimony um, are really around accuracy. Um, you know, it's really important to make sure that the analysis isn't just being done because we have the data. You, you have to actually know that the data is accurate, um, whether it's precise enough to make the kind of conclusions that you're making is a big one, right? Mm -hmm. um, we spent a lot of time in our testimony distinguishing between precision and accuracy, which is which was a lot of fun. I think something that people still mix up. Um, and um, can you and, give us that uh, another sentence on that? Yeah, uh, what yeah. are the differences? Yeah, I think they get used interchangeably, right? But but basically, um, precision has to do with uh, how granular the data is. So highly precise data might say, I'm standing at this specific street corner, um, a block from my house. So imagine a latitude and longitude string with lots of numbers after the decimal point. Highly, highly precise. In comparison, standing in Central Park is less precise or located in New York, less precise um, or broad data. Um, and accuracy just has to do with what the, whether the data um, matches where you actually physically are um, whether it's accurate to your true value or your true location. So you can imagine um, highly precise data that is not accurate if it's just wrong, right? Because you've got a bad mm -hmm. measurement or bad signals coming in. Um, you can also imagine highly accurate data that is imprecise. So the fact that I'm standing in New York, um, maybe that's accurate. I am in New York. Great. Um, but it's not very precise. Um, and so yep. the best case, I think, for a lot of the coronavirus-related uh, use cases, the best case scenario is when you have data that is both accurate and precise. But the accuracy piece is really, really big because particularly particularly in marketing and advertising, a lot of commercial location data sets, um, you know, the accuracy doesn't really matter that, uh, as much as it might for public health cases. Um, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's just, you know, <laughs> the consequences of serving an advertisement to not exactly the right spot are pretty, you know, minimal. So uh, maybe the incentives are not there to have it be a hundred percent accurate. Um, 
And it depends, you know, what sensors you're using and what kind of data you're getting in, what signals you're getting in from the phone and how the phone captures those. You know, if you've ever gone on a road trip and like your GPS marker seems to be off on the map (laughs) and then you turn your Wi-Fi on and your Bluetooth on and it gets better. That's why. Right. Because the more signals coming in, generally, the more accurate um, it will be. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think of a cell phone tower where you may have, you know, a very precise measurement of where that tower is, but mm-hmm. um, but your and your phone may be pinging off that and and give you a location for that tower, but it's not accurate to where you uh, may actually be, which could be within a you know several mile radius of the tower itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, exactly. And so there was a lot of conversation about this a couple of months ago, but whether Bluetooth, for example, by itself, is accurate enough. Um, to get to within uh, six feet, certainly the precision is there, but Mm -hmm. the accuracy can be thrown off by things like, you know, whether you're standing on uh, two people on either side of a wall. Um, And in comparison, you know, telecommunications data, your your cell phone carrier, um, they might have accurate data, but maybe it's just not precise enough to get to within that six foot CDC guideline um, level of precision for effective contact tracing. Um, yeah. And so representativeness is a big deal too. You got to make sure you don't have bias in your data set. If you're talking about cell phones, you know, of course you have to account for the fact that some percentage of the population, uh, particularly older populations don't carry cell phones, right? You're going to be totally missing a whole percentage uh, of the population. And if the data comes from mobile apps, then you got to think about what kinds of apps is, uh, is this data coming from? Um, are, are there going to be biases or lack of representation there? Um, the famous example, and I, th- I think it was from the city of Boston from some number of years ago, was was around a, a pothole detector app. So you could report to local government um, if there was a pothole on your street and they would come out and fix it. I love the idea. I know. It sounds great. I, I, I think that sounds great. And I think uh, it was an optimistic thing, but what they quickly figured out was that only certain types of people were downloading this app and it tended to be more affluent areas that didn't actually need as much work to begin with. Um, and so the distribution of resources ended up being biased, right? It, or ended up being um, not equal, Um not equally distributed amongst the people who actually needed it. It didn't, it didn't reflect the reality of who actually needed uh, the most attention. Yeah. That's, that's a great example. You know, for all the reasons that you highlighted the, the, the challenges of, you know, reaching a, a level of precision and accuracy, that's actually helpful to healthcare workers mm-hmm. and, and also the privacy challenges that you highlighted, you know, the sensitivities around this that really require a voluntary, uh, standard. It, is the verdict still out on whether or not you know contract tracing applications are useful, or have we are we are we nearing the end of that discussion and it's and and thinking that this is no longer the best path forward and we should devote our time and attention elsewhere? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I think we're continuing to learn more, right? So I think in the early months of the conversation, there was an idea, for example, that you needed a certain level of adoption rate in order for contact tracing or exposure notification apps to be effective at all. Um, 
And that has since been debunked a little bit. It's more of a curve in the sense that the more people download and install an exposure notification app, the more effective it's going to be. Uh, but it might be effective even at lower or under 60% adoption rates. Um, and as for effectiveness, you know, it, it depends too whether we're talking about contact tracing or exposure notification. And I think these two terms have been used interchangeably a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, contact tracing is a set of useful tools whereby a person might be tracking their own movements tracking who they're coming into contact with and kind of like you might do with a pen and paper, right? In a notebook. And then if you are diagnosed, um, contact tracing that would traditionally have been done through an in-person interview can be facilitated through technology. So there are a lot of different things being developed to help do that. So some of them are about, um, you know, just having an encrypted way of communicating with your healthcare provider a lot of work being done to help enable that. Maybe there's an easy way that you can input the contact information of people that you've come into contact with if you know who they are. Um, location data could be useful there in the sense that you might be able to say, specifically, I was at, at Whole Foods you know, between this time and this time on this date. Um, and that might be useful if you're able to sort of facilitate an alert to that location to let them know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole world. There, there are a lot of digital tools um, to, just to facilitate the contact tracers. Um, so most states are ramping up their hiring and training of contact tracers, and um, they can be facilitated through digital tools that have nothing to do with mobile apps, just, just to sort of pin that. Um, so companies like Salesforce, for example, are developing tools to help do that. You can supplement that with all kinds of other data um, around, you know, where people live and how to contact them. Um, and then there's sort of this more narrow world that hasn't hasn't gotten um, maybe enough adoption yet to know whether it's going to be useful, which is exposure notification. And the problem that exposure notification apps are trying to solve is the problem of being an asymptomatic carrier and not knowing who you're coming into contact with. Mm -hmm. So if there's a 10 day period where say you don't have any symptoms, you don't know that you're infected, but you are nonetheless um, possibly infecting other people. um, Some of them you'll know who you are, who they are. uh, But, but if you've been out and about a good bit, you are not going to remember who you stood next to in line, you know, a week ago at the grocery store for the most part. Right. Um, and there's no sort of digital tool that's going to help a, a government contact tracer um, figure that out. So exposure notification apps, which rely on Bluetooth signaling technology, really rely on having a sufficient adoption rate. And the idea is that if I have the app installed and you have the app installed and we don't know each other, um, but we perhaps we come into contact with each other, we're standing next to each other in the grocery store line or sitting next to each other at a park, but we don't know each other, um, that my app would be sending out Bluetooth identifiers on a rotating basis, just kind of yeah, the word they use is chirp. They're chirp, chirping out Bluetooth identifiers. And your app is doing the same. And 
they're saving those numbers locally on the phone. Afterwards, um, if I were to be diagnosed, um, my app would have a list of all of the identifiers that I had sent out, and the app would be able to sort of push that information out so that you would receive an automatic alert of some kind that just says, hey, Alex, uh, you might have been in proximity to somebody who was diagnosed. Um, maybe you want to self-quarantine. Maybe you want to come in and get a test. Uh, maybe you want to stay in for 10 days, right? So that yeah, kind gives of you some actionable yeah, yeah, takeaway based on this notification that you otherwise might not have. Exactly. Yeah. It's, and it's something that you wouldn't otherwise have. Exactly. Right. So it's not necessarily a replacement for manual contact tracing or traditional contact tracing, but more of a supplement, something that wouldn't have been possible before and solves a very discreet question um, around, you know, asymptomatic transmission. But it also requires enough adoption, right? So if you don't have the app installed, it really doesn't matter what I do. Um, you're not going to get the alert and vice versa, right? Yep. It'll be interesting to see just based on, you know, how the next few months go um, and and how, you know, bad yeah. the crisis continues yeah. to be, how this impacts the, you know, people's calculation of what the, the right, you know, trade-offs are and whether or not they um, should download, uh, these apps as they become more widely available. So that'll be interesting yeah. to watch and maybe we'll, we'll need a follow up in, uh, in a few months to, to see how that develops. Yeah. It, it's, it's been really optimistic. I mean, the changes that Apple and Google had to make in order to facilitate that kind of, um, data sharing were really important, I think. Um, and, and I think it's kind of went under the radar for a lot of people. Um, it wouldn't have been possible prior to them making changes to the operating system that let you do things like send Bluetooth information passively and uh, and constantly without the app being open in the background or in the mm -hmm. foreground. Um, so they had to make changes to make that possible. And it doesn't reveal uh, precise location data, right? So I think there's been some amount of confusion because other apps uh, like the ones developed in the Dakotas um, do involve location data. And in other cases, maybe you have to give permission, if you have an Android phone, for an app to access location data in order for it to actually just be sending Bluetooth signals. Um, so there's a lot of confusion. And unfortunately, I think a lot of mistrust. Um, so we, we're not seeing high adoption rates, um, high enough, perhaps, adoption rates in the US yet. But it'll be it'll be something to watch. And we're also seeing legislative efforts um, pause some of this. So for example, South Carolina uh, recently said that they're, they're not ready yet. So they, they uh, passed an appropriations bill um, uh, appropriating, uh, sorry, distributing funding um, under the CARES Act to, uh, to some of these public health efforts. Um, and as part of it said, none of it can be used for contact tracing apps yet until they have a chance to do it hold some hearings, learn more about it, right? Um, so yeah, unfortunately, there's still a lot of mistrust. Yeah, and as kind of a, a final question and just expanding from that, do you anticipate Congress or, or more states legislating in this space in the near future? I anticipate, uh, well, we've, we've seen a good bit of state level legislative activity around COVID-19 specifically. Um, at the federal level, I 
we, we've seen a number of proposals for consumer privacy legislation, which is a really good thing. I don't mm-hmm. necessarily anticipate that we'll see one pass in the near future, uh, but um, I am optimistic about uh, a federal consumer privacy law happening in the next couple of years, and certainly it will cover location data, um, whether it's explicit or whether it's implied through a definition of personal information, for example. Um, no doubt in my mind that location data and the privacy of location data is going to be federally regulated at some point in the future. Um, but I think in, in the really near future, in the next couple of months, the thing that uh, people should probably be watching is what's happening in California. Um, so tomorrow, the CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, actually becomes enforceable by the California Attorney General. It's finally here. <laughs> it's finally here. It's been in effect since January, but July 1st is the date of AG enforcement. So it's finally here. Uh, but perhaps more importantly than that, we just recently, or sorry, the, the proponents just recently certified a new ballot initiative for the 2020 ballot. So in November, California voters will vote on a new privacy ballot initiative that will amend the CCPA being called the CPRA um, or CIPRA, CPRA, CIPRA, um, the California Privacy, I want to say Privacy Rights Act, (laughs) I don't want to get that wrong. I think that's right, yep. (laughs) CPRA um, would not come into effect until 2021, but it's considerably more substantive than CCPA. So I guess the lesson is if you if you thought this was bad, <laughs> um, the CPRA looks a lot more like European Union standards under the GDPR. It's much more substantive. There are restrictions around sensitive data, which specifically includes geolocation data. So that's the one to watch. It just got certified for the ballot. It's like a near certainty that Californians will vote for it. Um, and so it's it's very likely to become law. Um, so not not too soon I think, to, to be looking at that and starting to prepare. And that construct of having a new category of sensitive personal information in addition to just personal information and including geolocation information uh, in the sensitive category, I think that's a trend we've also seen at the federal level. So it's interesting to see how how these laws and are developing over time and what trends are developing. Um, yeah. So that's, a I think, a, a good overview. And yes, much more to come on, on CPRA. But... I know that FPF has been doing uh, a lot of work on this topic. Um, I'd like to make sure that uh, our members and anyone listening uh, knows how to get involved. Uh, anything you'd like to, to plug or uh, to pitch for for those listening? You know, I would just say uh, do do get involved, right? Um, it, it needs It's a field that needs more expertise. Um, and one of our big missions with respect to... Um, legislation at Future Privacy Forum is just helping get more educational content out there. Um, So we do a lot of policymaker education work like the recent infographic. Um, We work with privacy advocates and privacy academics uh, and government regulators in addition to industry. So um, there's a lot of work to be done and welcome expertise from from anywhere. I I think um, the big conversation for the next couple of years is going to be not not whether to regulate how companies can collect and use location data, but how to regulate. 
Um, there are questions still about what, whether consent is always the right legal model or whether we ought to be thinking about other legal models like we have in the EU under legitimate interests. Um, and so if you're involved in that conversation or you want to be involved in that conversation uh, here in the U.S., reach out. We'd love to have you involved. Well, and on behalf of IB, we're very thankful for all the work you're doing in advancing uh, conversations on this uh, quickly evolving space. So our guest today has been Stacy Gray of the Future Privacy Forum. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for listening to another episode of the IAB Policy Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, please email me at alex at iab.com or follow me on Twitter at alexpropes. And if you enjoyed the conversation, please tell your friends and colleagues and consider giving us a rating in your podcast app. For more information about IAB, visit iab.com forward slash podcasts. Have a great day.